you have tuned in to the Men of God Network, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. The following reading is taken from the book Life in Jesus, a memoir of Mrs. Mary Winslow, the mother of Octavius Winslow. Arranged from her correspondence, Diary and Thoughts, 1860. This reading is taken from Chapter 2 of her conversion, the day dawn of grace. From the age of 10 years, I have been in a habit, she writes, of reading to my mother every night the whole duty of man. This book, I believe, brought me under a law work of soul. After my marriage, I discontinued reading it, but still what I had read was impressed upon my mind and memory. Often would the thought come over me, how can such a one as I get to heaven? Heaven is a good place, and only the good go there. Oh, if I could but cease from sin and keep the commandments. Sometimes I shut myself up, and with the whole duty of man, or the common book of prayer in my hand, upon my knees, I have solemnly promised I would keep all the commandments. And while doing this, I felt greatly relieved of my burden, as if the work were done that was to fit me for heaven. But ere the day was over, my goodness has passed away, and I felt as unfit as ever for the abodes of the holy and the good. At other times I thought I was not worse than most people, and that God was too good to condemn the whole world. During this period I never hinted my feelings to my husband. I was afraid he would think from my distress of mind that I had committed some dreadful sin. Nor could I explain my views to him. I heard no gospel though a constant attendant at church. Once as I ventured to go to the Lord's table and recollect shedding tears at hearing of the sufferings of Christ, but soon after I relapsed into the ways of the world and forgot my vows. A young creature, the wife of one of the officers, died at a place where our regiment was quartered. Her death greatly shocked me as I feared she was not good enough any more than myself to go to heaven. I was in the room when she died. But as we were under orders for Bermuda, I soon in the bustle and excitement of preparing for the voyage forgot the serious impression her death made upon me. But still, an earnest desire more or less followed me to try and commend myself to God and make myself fit for heaven. I often hoped I might die of a lingering disease, as that would afford me more time for repentance. Soon after my marriage, I was at a ball. I was then a bride, receiving much attention, and my pride was gratified. I had married the man I loved, and who loved me in return. My mother was more than reconciled to the step I had taken. She was pleased. I had everything my carnal heart could desire. Not a wish was ungratified. I was at the very zenith of earthly happiness. On returning from the ball, I took a hasty review of the evening I'd pass as I lay sleepless upon my pillow. The glitter, the music, the dance, the excitement, the attention, the pleasure all passed before me. But oh, I felt a want I could not describe. I sighed and whispered to myself these expressive words. Is this all? I felt at the moment that if this were all the happiness a world could bestow, then was there a lack I knew not how to supply. 
and a void I could not fill. I'd reached a very summit of earthly bliss and found it to fall short of what my heart craved and my soul required. From this time I grew more fond of retirement and less inclined to mingle with the gay world. I felt that what I had been pursuing in the early part of my life was not happiness. I turned from it with a sensation of loathing and sought in solitude what I had never found in the brilliant and crowded walks of life. I thought that there must be a state where real happiness was to be found. In this condition of mind, I continued for years striving to keep the law and to shape my course by the whole duty of man. I endeavored to walk so as to please God, but again and again my best resolutions were broken. These feelings I concealed from all around me, for I would not for the world have breathed a hint that I was unhappy to the dearest friend. I saw everyone around me apparently happy in the possession of the world, which had lost its charm for me. I now sought peace of mind and domestic enjoyment. I was encircled by my children, possessed a husband who anticipated my fondest wish, and my heart could sigh for nothing of earthly bliss which I did not possess. And still I was unhappy. I was a sinner, and his secret conviction beclouded every prospect and embittered every cup. Such were the mental exercises, sad yet hopeful, which foreshadowed a dayspring from on high in her heart. It was now the twilight of grace in her soul, the dark clouds, which had so long enshrouded her, were breaking, and this dreary night of weeping was fast retiring before the dawning splendor of a morning of joy. After living a military life for some years, Captain Winslow was induced to retire to an ancestral estate near Romford in Essex. But change of place and diversity of scene supply no real relief to a mind burdened with sin. Referring to her removal, she remarks, quote, While here I was conscious, though surrounded by every earthly comfort, and by all I loved, and had more time for reading and reflection of the same lack I had felt years before, my mind was restless. My soul wanted what earth could not supply and yet I could not describe to anyone what I needed, nor what I felt. I was unhappy, at times miserable, my weary soul thirsting for what it had not, and yet I could not answer myself and say what that one thing was. It was no longer possible to conceal from her husband a sadness which, like the spoiler, wrapped itself within the folds of every flower of earthly good. The quick eye of affection detected a lurking sorrow, the cause of which baffled his ingenuity to discover. He marked the pallor of her cheek, the stifled sigh, and a vain attempt at cheerfulness. It was enough, however, to know that she was unhappy, Attributing it to the solitude of their residence, he instantly resolved upon an expedient for its relief. In returning home one day, he informed her that he had taken a house in town and proposed immediate removal. The idea of a change was pleasing, and in a short time they were fully established in their new abode. In all this, God's hand was signally moving. He was leading her blind steps by a way she knew not, but it was to bring her soul panting for the living water, to the spring whence it flowed. 
It does not appear that the ministry of the parish church in which her new residence was situate was of a character calculated to meet the exigencies of such a case. There was the absence of that evangelical element which could alone constitute it a message of life and spirit to its hearers. Referring to it, she says, quote, There was nothing to satisfy my soul. The first event marking God's overruling providence in this change of residence was the appointment just at this juncture of the Reverend Thomas Shepherd to the perpetual courtesy of St. James Episcopal Chapel. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Never did these expressive words of the evangelical prophet receive a more striking illustration than now. Mr. Shepherd was a decided man of God and an able minister of the New Testament. His ministry, sound in doctrine and richly experimental in its character, was accompanied by an earnestness of spirit and a persuasiveness of address which at once met the peculiar state of mind it was designed to relieve. Thus two individuals, under the special guidance of God, entered the parish of Pittenville almost simultaneously. The one was a soul bowed down with grief or sin, and who could in no wise lift herself up. The other was a messenger of peace, whose ministry of grace was to loosen her bonds and set her captive spirit free. For her sake his feet were guided there, little divining, doubtless, for what special intent his master had thus brought him, but the narrative is best and more fully told by herself. Quote, the change of residence was pleasant to me. I was thrown more amongst my friends, and for a while my mind was diverted from its gloom. We were near the chapel of ease. I went, but there was nothing to satisfy my soul. The minister had been preaching here for twenty-one years, but now it was the Lord's time that he should be removed, and that a real shepherd should take his place. I went and heard from the new minister for the first time in my life the precious gospel of peace. This is what I had lacked, to know for many years that Jesus Christ had come into the world to save poor sinners. I was a sinner and wanted to be saved. Oh, how eagerly I listened and drank in every word. I'd been in vain trying to work out my salvation, but my works always fell short, and left me as poor and miserable as ever. Now was held out to me the hope that I might be saved by the work of another, the work of Jesus Christ. With one observation of Mr. Shepherd, I was much impressed. Describing my spiritual state of mind on one occasion, he most solemnly said, If there is such an individual present, I will pledge my soul for it, that that individual is in the way to Christ. With this remark, I was deeply struck. I thought the free invitation of the gospel he was presenting must be true, since this godly man was willing to risk his soul upon the truth of what he was asserting. Oh, if this were true, I might after all be saved. My heart and mind were now at work. I repaired to my Bible and searched it again and again. By grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God was a passage that arrested my attention. I found it in the epistle of James we were justified by works, and my heart sank within me. I had no works, 
and could do none pleasing and acceptable to God. In the epistles of Paul, I read that we were justified by faith. There seemed a contradiction. My anxious mind could find no rest, but still I felt a ray of hope dawn upon my benighted soul and continued to hear the precious truth as one hungering and thirsting for divine knowledge. One night, watching alone by the side of a sick child, I took my Bible and searched the scriptures. The question how the sinner could be justified pressed heavily upon my mind. If I could be saved by faith in the righteousness of another, then I felt that there was hope for me. But if there was anything for me to do towards meriting this salvation, I saw I must be forever lost. I read first one epistle and then another, when as I read the words were brought to my mind, Ask, and you shall receive. I reason, who is it that says this? It is God. Can God lie? It is impossible. He must do what he has said. He is commanded, Ask, and you shall receive. I will ask. I fell upon my knees and pleaded the promise. My petition was offered in the simple language of an untutored child. I knew nothing of Christian experience, had heard the gospel but a few times, and the only thing that had fastened itself upon my mind was the truth that a poor sinner could be saved. Thus I went to God and pleaded the promise, asking him how such a wretched sinner as I was could be saved. I did not wrestle so much for my salvation as to know how I could be saved as a helpless sinner that could do nothing. I arose from my knees and again took my Bible. I read and compared scripture with scripture, but the one part appeared to contradict the other, and my mind was left in darkness and perplexity. Again I carried the promise to the throne of grace and again wrestled with the Lord. I returned to my Bible, but yet it was a sealed book. The third time I ventured near the Lord, still pleading as one gracious promise, Ask, and you shall receive. In an instant light broke in upon my soul. Jesus stood before me and spoke these blessed words, I am your salvation. I hailed the glad tidings my heart and soul responded, Jesus was with me. He had himself spoken. I had seen the Lord had heard his voice, my soul was saved, my burden was gone, the grave clothes in which I had been so long confined fell off. My spirit was free, and I seemed to soar towards heaven in the sweetest riches enjoyment. My heart filled with a joy unspeakable. I arose from my knees to adore and praise and bless his holy name. Oh, what a night was that, never, never to be forgotten. I had seen Jesus. It was no vision of the bodily senses that I saw, but I had no more doubt that I was a redeemed and pardoned sinner. I had seen Christ and held communion with him who died that I might live, that I had of my own existence. It was with difficulty I could refrain from calling up the whole house to hear what the Lord had done for my soul. I thought all would believe and rejoice too, so ignorant was I. As soon as it was morning, I informed my husband of what the Lord had done for me. He looked amazed at what I said and feared I should lose my senses. I was grieved that he did not believe and could not understand, and urged him by every argument I could employ to seek for the same blessing, which I was sure the Lord would give him. It has since been evident to myself that when the Holy Ghost gave me the promise to plead, he also gave me a measure of faith to credit God for its fulfillment.
And in answering the prayer of simple faith, Christ came into my soul with a full and free salvation. I am your salvation. Just as good news indeed, fresh from heaven. Christ was mine. Heaven was mine. All care and sorrow had vanished, and I was as happy as I could be in the body. I'd found what I'd long sought. I'd been in search of real happiness for years, and in one night I found it all in Jesus. God's richest treasury had been thrown open to my view, and in him I found all I wanted for time and eternity. In his happy frame I continued many weeks imploring all I knew and loved to come to Christ. But none understood me. I began to think that no one knew Jesus Christ but dear Mr. Shepherd and myself. I often felt that if I'd met a chimney sweep in the street that knew and loved Christ, I could embrace him as a brother. Such is a simple glowing narrative of one upon whose soul the Son of Righteousness had just arisen. In the earnestness of religious feeling, breathing through these genuine utterances of the heart, the reader may trace the leading characters of her subsequent Christian life. And at this early period of her new birth, there was much holy zeal. As yet unaccompanied with deep Christian experience, she always meekly acknowledged. She thought every mind would believe her simple story and that every heart would sympathize with her holy joy. She needed the helping hand of an advanced Christian. It would appear, however, that in the absence of personal intercourse with living saints, she met with the works of that eminent man of God, the Reverend John Newton, rector of Olney, whose richly experimental writings clothed in beautiful simplicity of style were admirably adapted to her state of mind and were richly owned of God in deepening her Christian knowledge and experience. To the latest period of her life, she referred with gratitude to the benefit she had derived from his writings. In one of the books found in her room after death was a volume of her favorite author, John Newton. The foregoing remarks are thus borne out in her continued biography. Quote, Some months after this, Satan was permitted to try my young faith, and it cast a cloud over my mind. Unbelief began to work. I feared I might be mistaken, as I could meet with none among all my friends who either understood what I said or knew what I had experienced. Had I then a matured Christian to whom I could have opened my heart, it would have been a great comfort. And yet it was well, it was so, that I might flee not to an arm of flesh, but to the living God. My mind was brought into darkness. The sensible presence of Christ was withdrawn and sadness filled my heart. I sought him, but found him not. I prayed, but received no comfort. Pacing my room one day under this dark dispensation and fearing I never again should enjoy what I once had, I threw myself upon my knees and cried to the Lord to come and bless me if I had not deceived myself. In a moment, in condescending love, the same precious Jesus stood before me as he did at the first, saying, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? I well recollect my answer. Clasping my hands in ecstasy, I exclaimed, My Lord and my God, I cannot and will not doubt. Forgive my base ingratitude. Overwhelmed with that blessed interview, I thought I never know, never would doubt again. Satan fled from the presence of the Lord, and I was left alone with God. 
My God, my own God, I could not tell my joy, and no one understood my feelings. At this time I became acquainted with the writings of the Reverend John Newton. I read them with great delight, and if he had been alive I would have walked miles to have conversed with him. End quote. It was not long before the providence of God guided to her door the steps of a deeply taught aged Christian and humble life. To him she opened her heart and found a warm response. He kindly took her by the hand and in lowliness of mind she yielded herself to his instructions. In a letter to her mother, she thus refers to this auspicious circumstance, quote, I enclose you a note from a poor man addressed to me. He is poor in this world's goods, but rich in faith. He watches over me as a father would a child, and I believe loves me as much. He visits me often, comforts and reproves, and endeavors to build me up in my most holy faith. And when he cannot come, he writes to me. He is a most pious, excellent Christian. His thoughts and whole heart are continually in heaven. Oh, that I were but more like him. It is an interesting fact that on her return from abroad, some years afterwards, she sought out her early Christian instructor, found him much advanced in years and ill health, and the occupant of an almshouse. There she frequently repaired, bearing with her some little temporal comfort, and often receiving in return a word of spiritual blessing. She occasionally invited him to her house and administered to his necessities until the venerable pilgrim exchanged his lowly abode on earth for the many mansion home of his father in heaven. The following letter addressed to her mother at Bermuda, with which we close this chapter, whilst it confirms a pleasing fact of her parents' spiritual change, evidences at the same time the remarkable clearness and growth of her own views of divine truth and in the illness of her husband to which it refers, foreshadows those trying dispensations which afterwards gave such maturity to her Christianity, and rendered her so extensively useful in comforting others, with the comfort with she herself had been comforted of God. October 22, 1810 My dearest mother, thank God you are all well. But above all, I desire to thank and bless his holy name that you and Bell are so wonderfully brought to know yourselves and to know him, whom to know is life everlasting. Blessed be God who passes by so many and who has deigned to look upon us who were lying as others, dead in sin, infinite in sovereignty, infinite in goodness, infinite in power. Why, he passes by some and calls others is only known to himself. But there is a time coming when we shall know even as we are known, and be enabled to see that he acts consistently with his goodness and mercy. All we have to do in this veil of tears is to press forward to the glorious prize. He is placed on our view, looking continually to Jesus, trusting not to our own strength but waiting in humble dependence upon him for all our sufficiency to carry us on and to enable us to hold out to the end. He that is promised is true and faithful to his word. Oh, that we may be found like his beloved handmaiden of old sitting at his feet. His eye is ever upon his dear dependent flock. He knows all our need and has promised to supply it. But for these things he'll be inquired of. 
It is at a throne of grace Jesus makes himself known to his saints, comforts them, revives their drooping spirits with a view of those blessings he has in store for them. This world is not our home. We look for a better. His people are pilgrims here on earth and generally are a poor and afflicted people. They have not their portion here, thousands have. Their portion is to come. Their names are written in the book of life and were written before the foundation of the world. Dears dear to him as the apple of his eye. Then what have we to fear? Nothing, but everything to hope. Blessed be God who sent his only son to pay our debt, to rescue us from the power of Satan, to cleanse us from all our guilt, to clothe our souls with his righteousness, and thereby give us a rightful claim to a crown of glory. Blessed be that dear Son who condescended to come amongst us to assume our nature and do for us what we had no power to do for ourselves. And blessed be the Holy Spirit who in infinite mercy forms and prepares us for the heavenly kingdom. I am delighted to find dear being has such clear views of the doctrine of the atonement and know that they may reach her heart and influence all her thoughts, words, and actions. My last letter will have informed you that the children's illness was occasioned by the measles and my precious husband's from a rupture of a blood vessel in the lungs. These things altogether have been a severe trial to mind and body, but I've been in a most wonderful manner supported under them. I've gone through enough to kill a dozen women stronger than myself, but the Lord has fulfilled the promise and given my strength according to my day. On Monday evening, I heard a very popular minister who was to preach at a chapel in Lincoln Inn Fields. I waited some time until the doors were opened, and then obtained a seat near the pulpit. But although the place was large, every part was densely crowded and people standing in the aisles. The preacher was Alexander Fletcher from Scotland, a young man of about twenty-two, but oh, how zealous, fervent, and inexpressibly great and sweet in explaining the glad tidings of salvation. His discourse was addressed to children particularly, and he has such uncommon power in directing and fixing the attention of both old and young that I do not believe the eyes of either were off him during the whole service. This good steward of Jesus preaches almost every evening in some part or other of London, Oh, when I see such servants of the Lord spending their strength, their lives are all for God, counting it nothing so that they might win Christ. I look at myself and mourn over my unprofitableness and desire to lie low in the dust. This good, zealous man of God, though followed by crowds, appears humble and lowly like his blessed master. Oh, my dear mama, how I long to have you with me where you may hear the blessed gospel preached in a thousand places. How precious it is in the ear of the redeemed. It is the soul's food, and we grow lean and lukewarm without it. May every covenant blessing attend you in the prayer of your affectionate daughter, Mary Winslow. Mm -hmm.